one of the most thought-provoking questions you can ask anybody is, are you a good person? It's one of the best questions you can ask anybody because whatever their response to that is going to tell you a lot about them. It might not tell you how good of a person they are. It might just tell you what they think of themselves. If you were to ask someone, are you a good person, um, you're going to find a lot of different responses. Some people will say, I'm mostly a good person. I try to be good. I you know, make mistakes like everybody else, but for the most part, I'm a good person. Other people might say, yeah, I uh, definitely am not a good person. I purposely try to do things that are bad. Uh, I really, really am not a good person, and I know I'm not a good person. That's a very small percentage of people, but some will say that. And others will say something more on the other side and say, no, I am a good person. I'm convinced. I'm a good person because I want what's best for me and what's best for the people that I love, and I do everything I can to do what's right. So I am a good person. Well, if you ask people that question, they're going to respond with their own judgment of themselves. Notice that. A lot of questions I could ask you, you would just respond with your own judgment of yourself, which sometimes is right and sometimes is wrong. But in Scripture, a lot of times, if we look at it to say, uh, first of all, am I a good person or not? The Scriptures are pretty clear. If we judge our lives based on what Jesus said or what Moses said or what God directly said in the Old Testament, what you're going to find the more you look is that your life does not measure up to what God says. Now, you've probably heard that before. Maybe people will show you the Ten Commandments. And they'll say, oh, you think you're a good person? Well, have you ever lied? The Bible says you can't do that. Right? Have you ever stolen anything? Or have you ever coveted something that's not yours? Right? Then they show you God's law, and then all of a sudden, you're like, well, I guess I'm not that good of a person. But sometimes when I ask people this question, one of their first responses, once I start to show them, hey, maybe you're not as good as you think, one of the first things they say, I love it, it's really funny, they say, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. You ever heard that? You ever thought that? Like, well, that's really good. Congratulations, right? You're in the 99.5% of people on this planet that have never murdered anybody. Congratulations. That must make you really good, right? But that's our natural response. We think, well, at least I haven't done the worst of all things. I want to show you this morning. It's very interesting. When Jesus is addressing whether or not we are actually good, the first thing he starts with is he goes to the extreme. And he said, okay, have we been keeping God's law? Let's start with the big one. Let's start with murder. Jesus quotes the Old Testament passage about murder, and then he says, okay, you might declare yourself innocent and say, I'm righteous before God's law because I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus takes it a level deeper and says, okay, you think you're a good person because you haven't done this really bad thing? You might not be as good as you think. He goes down to the heart level and says, if you are a person that's angry towards your brother, or you're a person that out of that anger starts to hurl insults at your brother or sister. He says, you're going to receive judgment a lot like those murderous people that you think need God's judgment. I want you to see this really clearly. Let's read it in black and white. Matthew chapter 5. Please turn there. Let's see what Jesus says here as he starts to talk about God's law. Remember, last week he said, I've not come to abolish the law. I have not come to say, hey, your Old Testament is irrelevant. I didn't come to say that. I came to fulfill what the Old Testament said. So what he's going to do in the next six sermons there's six little uh, paragraphs here that we're going to study. He starts off by quoting God's law, and he puts it like this. You have heard that it was said of old or to people in ancient days, and then he quotes God's law, right? He'll basically follow this pattern. He'll quote God's law, then he'll say, but I say to you, and then he'll say something, and then he'll apply it. That'll happen basically 
every sermon for the next six sermons. So this one's about anger and about murder. So he's going to take God's law about murder, and he's going to apply it to even our anger towards other people. Look how he says it. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Right? That's actually two things. That's why it's separated with a semicolon or an and, right? First rule is, hey, you shall not murder. That says nothing about the, the crime or punishment. That just says something about, yeah, don't do this. But then he says, the Old Testament quotes this, that if you murder somebody, then you're liable to judgment. What that means is that you should stand trial in answer for murdering somebody, right? We think that's natural, but, you know, that's not natural to everybody. Some people think, yeah, it's wrong to murder, but, like, you know, murderers shouldn't get any consequences. Well, Jesus says, no. The Old Testament says both those things are wrong. It's wrong to murder. Oh, and if you murder somebody, you are going to be in trouble with God and with whatever governing authority you have. He quotes the Old Testament like that. He's not abolishing it. But he says in verse 22, but I say to you, he's going to take it deeper. He says that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's the same phrase that he says, okay, in the Old Testament, if you murdered, you're going to get in trouble with God. Not just with God, but with the people in your life, obviously. Duh, right? But he says, I want to tell you the truth, something that maybe you don't know. That if you're angry in your heart with your brother, he uses the same formula. You are in trouble with God like murderers are in trouble with God. Right? Like if someone murdered someone in your family, you would hope that the murderer would be in trouble with God and with others, right? Well, Jesus says, okay, yeah, we all think that naturally. God's law says that. That's great. But do you realize that with God, if you're angry with somebody in your heart, you don't even have to do anything. You can just be mad. You could just be replaying scenarios and conversations in your head of what they said. He says, you could be guilty like murderers are guilty before God. That's a massive claim. That's a claim that's unique even to Jesus. Look what he says next. He says, I say to you, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, right? Different than the word judgment, council was this word that would describe the Sanhedrin or basically any group of people that was like the judges. It'd be like if you're liable to the Supreme Court. Sometimes people even take that phrase in, in uh, American English, Supreme Court, and they put it into their Bible translations here for council because it was a similar thing. The point is, it's like, okay, once you start to be angry in your heart, towards others. Now before God, you're in trouble. And also, it's like you should be in trouble even with like the Supreme Court. Notice what he's doing here. He's not saying that every time anybody's angry, the Supreme Court's going to say, all right, I heard that, that, that Becky Sue was, was angry with Alice. You know, we need a, you know, Supreme Court time. Now it's uh, worth all of our nine justices time. That's not what he's saying. But he's trying to paint the picture here to say, no, no, no. You might not think this is a big deal, right? You think murder's a big deal. Jesus, I think anger is a big deal. I think you insulting your brother is a big deal, such a big deal, a bigger deal than you're going to realize. Look what he says next. He says, and everyone who says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Notice judgment, the council, hell of fire. You're like seeing a progression in how serious this gets. Right? And I don't think there's really much of a progression uh, on the other side of the sin, because saying an insult and saying you fool are very similar, right? Even those words that he uses, raka is the word he uses, which is an Aramaic slang term, basically, which means empty. So when he, he says insult, it's like uh, you're angry at somebody, you call them an airhead, 
right? Or you're empty up here. You're, you're, you're a numbskull. You're, you're an idiot. You're stupid, right? He says, we give those insults, and if you do that from this place of anger and you're insulting someone because you're mad at them, you call you idiot, you fool, you stupid, right? When you do that, right, that's just describing an anger that's in your heart that Jesus is saying, I don't think you realize how wrong that is. It's wrong in your heart. Oh, and it's definitely wrong in your words, just like murder is wrong. But you all know murder is wrong. And you think, yeah, well, murderers should be punished, right? especially before God. God should take care of that. You think of all the people, like, uh, you know, it happens a lot, but all these, like, school shooters who seem to not face any justice. You have this sense of, like, God needs to do something about that, right? How come they can go into schools and they can kill people, and then they take their own life, which is what they want to do anyway? That doesn't seem right. God needs to do something about that. You have that sense of justice in your heart, right? I have it too, right? You probably think the same thing. Jesus says, you're angry with your brother in your heart before you even do anything, right? You're in sin there. Oh, and once you start to express that sin, right, through perhaps insulting them, saying nasty things about them, maybe name-calling them, like, you fool, you're stepping over a line with God that you probably don't even realize how big of a deal this is. He's trying to take your anger, he's trying to take a look at your heart and say the law in the Old Testament was very clear, you shall not murder. God's law also went further than that in the Old Testament. It actually went in Leviticus 19.18 to say you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You weren't just supposed to not kill them, you were supposed to love them. Right? So Jesus isn't saying, hey, in the Old Testament, the law was you know, down here, and now I'm just going to raise it for you. He's just showing what the point of the law was the whole time. But for people who stand and think, I'm righteous before God, this is, this is bad news for you. If you're a person who comes in here thinking, I am a good person, totally. God looks at me. He knows I have a good heart. He knows I would never hurt anybody. Yeah, my words maybe, but not physically, not with my hands. Some of us come into this room thinking that. Jesus is so clear. No, no, no. You're in trouble with God, even for anger in the heart, even for words that hurt others. Look what he says next. He says, so, in verse 23, he gives an example. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift at the altar. Okay? This is very interesting. This is a very Jewish setting, right? You got all these Jewish people in Galilee, if you know Galilee's 80 miles north of Jerusalem. The only place that you could really offer a sacrifice like this was in Jerusalem. So he's talking to all these Jewish people who probably maybe only once a year, or maybe not even that much, go and offer a sacrifice in Jerusalem. And you wait in a really long line, right, for hours and hours. You get up to the very front, and he's saying, like, he's painting this picture. You guys live in Galilee. You make this 80-mile journey. You come all the way down. You stand in the line for hours and hours and hours. Then you stand right there to offer your gift. And at that moment, you remember, my brother has something against me. Not I have something against my brother. What does it say? My brother has something against me. We're no longer talking about my anger. We're talking about your anger at me. You see that? He's saying, no, no, no. Someone's angry at you now. And you get all the way to that point. And you say, I don't want their anger at me to mess up my worship service. Jesus says, no, no, mess up your worship service. Because if someone's angry at you, you've done something to your brother or your sister. You've done something wrong, and they're right now bitter at you. He says, it'd be better for you to leave your gift at the altar. What does that look like? That looks like leaving the gift at the altar after you've waited hours to stand in line to offer this gift, and then to take an 80-mile journey up to Galilee, and then to come back down, wait in line, and offer it again. There's a little bit of hyperbole here. 
because you can't exactly leave a gift at the altar. Go do that. That would take like days and days and have the gift still be at the altar. It's similar to what he's going to say next week where he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, then you should cut it off. Right? So he's using some kind of hyperbole here, I do think. But the point still stands. Right? You got worship you want to do. Oh, and you got reconciliation that needs to happen. What's more important to God? Some of you spiritual people think, well, no, no, no. Worship is more important to God. My quiet time, that's more important to God. No, no, no. Coming to church, singing the words, that's more important to God. God says through Jesus, it's more important for you to reconcile with your brother than for you to sing worship songs. At least in order of priority. That's what God wants. We read this morning from Psalm 51 on the scripture reading that God does not delight in burnt offerings or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart, a spirit that's broken before God. God says, what do I really like from my people? It's not that they offer me gifts to cover up for their sin. It's that in their hearts, they're submissive. In their hearts, they want to make things right. This is extreme language of reconciliation. I just think it's so funny that we'll initially read this and say, okay, if your brother has something against you, if I have something against my brother, if I have something against my brother, you know, when I'm mad at somebody, that's not what Jesus is saying. That's a good principle, too. If you're mad at somebody, you should probably go reconcile and fix it. He's not talking about when you're mad at them. He's talking about when they're mad at you, when you cause anger because of your sin for some reason. It, he actually doesn't even say if it's your fault or not. Do you know He doesn't talk about that. Now, the next one, verse 25, he is going to say when it's your fault. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. So he paints two pictures here. Verse 23 and 24 is about a guy going to worship, right? And then he realizes something's wrong. Picture number two, verses 25 and 26, is the guy walking to court, right? About to hash it out in front of everybody, right? About to go to the judge, about to present his case. I'm going to present my side of the story, and someone else is going to arbitrate between us. And he says, no, no, listen to this. Look at this. He says, if you're going there with your accuser, you're walking to court, well, then what you should do is settle things. Figure it out. Do it quickly. He says, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What he's trying to say is when it comes to reconciliation, when you need to reconcile with people, he says, you need to do it quickly. Don't wait. He even gives a selfish reason. You can imagine maybe a person's done something wrong and they're on their way to court and maybe there's a dispute about money. He says, no, if something, someone's got something against you, they're your accuser, you better, you'd be smart if you settled it before it ever got out to the judge and before you ever had to demand payment. You've got to seek reconciliation, forgiveness quickly. Don't let it get drawn out because you want everyone to hear your side of the story. This is convicting stuff. Jesus is not pulling any punches. This is serious. And for us, right, if you're a disciple of Christ, I want this for you to show you how bad and sinful and disgusting, really, our anger and our conflict and our self-righteous disagreements with other people is. I want you to see, like, this is a bad thing. And before you say, all right, I know all the people. Oh, I know a lot of people. They've got grudges. Oh, do you know about my parents? Do you know about my cousins? Do you know about my siblings? Do you know about the people in my small group? They hate all these people. All right, before you stink and talk about somebody else, right, before you go and look at them, Jesus isn't talking about them right now. He's talking to you, right? Is there anger in your heart against your brother or sister? Is there anger that displays itself in nasty insults that you hurl at your parents because you think they don't understand you? There are nasty things that you say to people 
behind their back, perhaps, in your small group that are causing divisions and cliques and problems? Is that what's happening? What about at your school? Are you salt and light? See, Jesus holds up such a high standard here that all of us, in some way or another, are condemned by what Jesus says, and that's true. But if you're a Christian, remember, if you're here in verse uh, 26, just look up real quick to verse 20. We just read it last week. But this is what sets the stage for all of this. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is trying to say, if you're a disciple, your righteousness has to be more than skin deep. And the Pharisees, they didn't murder anybody either. Oh, but they hated people in their hearts. Oh, they insulted people. And they said, hey, I'm clean in God's eyes because guess what? What does the law say? You shall not murder. So I'm good. Heart righteousness is what God wants. So two things for you this morning. You have two points. You got some sub points there. Let's get through this. Point number one. Very hard for us to do, but we need to do this. Point number one, admit that your anger condemns you like a murderer. That's what Jesus is very clearly saying. Admit that your anger in your heart, whether it's manifested just there or out in your life, your anger condemns you like a murderer. It's not the same thing as murder, right? Some of us immediately read this and say, okay, is Jesus saying anger equals murder? He's not saying that, okay? Murdering people is worse than being angry at them, right? Uh, but both are wrong, they're not equally wrong in the sense that they're the same, you know, amount of bad, but they are equally wrong. Sometimes we say all sins are equal before God. That's not true, okay? But he is saying we are all equally sinful before God. Like we all are sinful before God. But no, of course he's not saying all sins are the same. Just like in the next section, he's not saying that lust is the same thing as adultery. Adultery is worse than lust, right? But both are wrong. Just like murder is worse than anger, but both are wrong. The problem is he's addressing people who don't really think their anger is wrong. Just like a lot of us, some of us justify our anger and we think, well, I can be mad at them because you know what they did or what they said. Right? I can be mad at them. Right? He doesn't give you that space. He doesn't give you that room. He's condemning these like self-righteous people. I want to warn you about that. He says anger in your heart and then anger in your words. Those are our two subpoints, right? We want to talk about our heart, then we want to talk about our words. First of all, uh, write it down like this. I want you to stop nurturing hateful grudges in your heart. Stop nurturing hateful grudges in your heart. He says, look, if you got heart anger, and this word anger, it's a deep word for anger. There's a couple words in the New Testament. This one is the more intense of the two, and it describes the kind of hatred. Uh, one early church writer says, there's a kind of anger that burns really fast and then burns out, and then there's a kind of anger that burns really long and really hot and really slow. This is the kind of really hot and really long and really slow anger that's described in Scripture. There's a kind of anger that's just like a, a, an outburst, right? Uh, I'm mad, I'm mad, like, like boy anger and girl anger, no offense, girls, right? Boys, when they get angry, they figure it out, they fight it out, they get way more violent, and then afterwards they give each other hugs, right? Uh, this is obviously, um, I'm just kind of kidding here, because, you know, guys can hold grudges and girls can fight, but, uh, you know, stereotyping. Point is, you know the different kind of anger. You know the kind of anger that's like, Frustrated, oh, but we're friends at the end. We love each other, right? There's reconciliation. Then there's the type of anger that unresolved conflicts go on for a long time, right? You might know this in your family. You might know this uh, maybe in your friend groups, that there's, there's beef that has never been dealt with. He's saying, God in your heart, it's like it's murderous. God looks at it like he looks at murder. It's, it's wrong in the, in the same way. Not to the same extent, but in the same way it's wrong. Yeah, I, 
a lot of things can go on in our hearts, and we think that it's outside of our control. A lot of us believe the lie that you can't control what you think. It's like, I just feel this way, or I just think this. I can't help thinking about this. I can't help but feel this way. Uh, that's not true. The Bible over and over the time says that's not true. You can control what you're thinking. You control even what you're feeling if you take the right steps. The problem is for a lot of us, we have anger in our hearts because we nurture it. That's why I made you write down that word nurture. You know what nurturing means? It means feeding. It, it means like, uh, you know, if you've got a, weeds in the backyard, you don't want them to grow, well, then don't water them, right? Kill them. Oh, you got roaches in your house? I had roaches in my house one time. It's kind of gross. Ants, a lot of times. Whenever it rains, the ants kind of come up, right? We're on like a second floor, so they kind of crawl up our stairs on the outside of our apartment, and then you see them, so I spray the raid. I don't know if that's allowed, but we, yeah, it is allowed for me because I do it, but whatever. Not to be self-righteous, but, you know, I use raid, whatever. Probably not as natural as your, what your mom does, but whatever, that's fine. Uh, Ro- I like the roach and ant one, perfect, right? Because it covers both of our issues. There's, you know, roaches will actually be in your house if you keep Trader Joe's bags next to each other, next to the fridge. You know, there's going to be roaches if you keep Trader Joe's bags next to each other in the fridge. Um, that's Alexandra. Because uh, she keeps Trader Joe's bags next to each other by the fridge. And roaches love cardboard. And sometimes they'll hang out there. And sometimes you'll grab one and it will come out in the kitchen floor, right? And then... Um, Go ask your husband to kill it. I don't know. This, this didn't really happen. No, it's happened. One time. But, you know, I always naturally, and you always naturally, when you got ants, you got roaches, you, like, do everything you can to stop it. Like, you, you, you put up the traps. You, you spray for it. You get them out. You're, you're afraid of it. You have a natural sense of, like, I don't like this thing. Some of us are feeding the roaches of anger. You're feeding the ants. You're leaving the food out, so to speak. You're replaying these conversations. The people you're mad at, you're replaying them in your head over and over and over again. You're mad at somebody, and it's like you would probably not be mad at them if you just forgot about it, but you just keep replaying it. You can't help but think about it. Well, then stop thinking about it. Think about something else, right? Think about anything else, right? Let's at least start there. You're mad at somebody, stop replaying the bad things that they did in your head. It's not helpful. If you really care about what Jesus says, if you really want to stop having anger in your heart. The best example of this is right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 4, it's interesting, in our text it says, if you're angry at your brother, do you know that the first time in history that a brother was angry at another brother, what happened? The first time, when a brother was angry at another brother, that brother killed that other brother. It led to murder. This is very interesting. I think Jesus is actually kind of pointing us to the story. You're angry at your brother? You know you've wronged your brother? You're even offering your gift at the altar. You know what also happens in Genesis 4? There's a brother offering his gift at the altar, right? I think Jesus is pointing us back to Cain and Abel. Cain, that first baby that was ever born. Abel, the second. You know, Cain had a a situation where what he offered to God, for some reason, wasn't as pleasing as what Abel offered to God. And it says in Genesis chapter 4, let me read it. It says, when Cain brought these gifts to the altar... God had no regard for Cain's offering, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell, right? You know what, when your face falls, right? Instead of being happy and joyful, and your chin's up, your chin goes down, and you're mad. The Lord said to Cain, very interesting, God speaks to him and says, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? God knows the answer to those, but he wants him to think, why are you so mad? What's the real answer to that? Why is Cain mad? He's mad because of envy and jealousy. 
One of the reasons some of you are very angry at people is because you're jealous of the attention they get. Some of you are envious of their popularity or their looks or what they have. And that's why you're angry at them. That's why Cain was angry at Abel. This is the first big, big sin of, of murder here. It starts with him being jealous. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's very interesting. He says, offer a better sacrifice, man. How about you sacrifice a little bit more? I'm not like picking favorites. Abel's not my favorite. I don't hate you, Cain. You're just not giving to me what's pleasing to me. So if you do well, you know you're going to get the same acceptance. And then he said, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God warns Cain, hey, look, I know you're angry and you're envious of your brother. You realize that sin is like right outside your door. You need to rule over this sin. What's the sin he's talking about? Well, it's going to be murder in this case, right? And for you, you may have sin that's crouching at the door. You may do things and say things that you would never dream, but it started and you did it and you didn't think you would do it because you were nurturing anger in your heart against your brother, against your sister, against your parents, against your friends, against your classmates, against your teammates. Anger in your heart that you were feeding and feeding. Cain does not stop feeding it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and they went out into the field. Right? So even this, Cain plans to do this. He draws him out. He has a plot and a scheme. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You don't really know what you would do if you keep your anger in your heart towards your friends. Like Some of you who have limiters, you're like, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't kill somebody. Scripturally, I wouldn't put it past you, right? No offense, right? But I wouldn't put it past you. You harbor resentment for long enough, you'll start to say things that you wouldn't have otherwise said. You'll start to turn into a person that, like, you didn't think that you would. I, I, don't, I don't think I would have turned into that kind of person. I don't think I would have said those kind of things. But, but they came out. Why do they come out? And we immediately say, oh, I couldn't help it. It's like, no, you could have helped it a month ago when you were angry at them and you kept feeding it. 1 John 3 says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Some of you who are not Christians in this room have this uh, type of hatred towards some of the other Christians that are here, or at least the ones that are professing to be Christians. So some of you look at them and think like, I just, I just hate them. I just think they're fake. I just think there's no way they could really be following God. You may be right or wrong, right? I don't know. But you realize where that comes from? It comes from envy and jealousy. It comes from a bad place. And then you start assigning motives to other people. And you think, they must be a faker. They were so nice to me, they must, I, I don't know, what, who put them up to that, right? This is an assignment. Who made them do And then you all, you all of a sudden start assigning all these negative motives to people because you're angry at them. Why? Because you're jealous of them. That's where it starts, right? Jealousy and envy lead to this anger. Then it leads to all these other different kinds of sins. John says later in that passage, this is 1 John 3.15, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Right? You, think, you think that you're right with God while you hate people? Right? That's just an incongruous thing. Like You shouldn't expect that. Like That's a non-Christian thing. The Bible describes a lot of things that are incompatible with Christianity, 
right? That if I'm saying I'm a disciple of Christ, well, then that has to go. If that's in your life, if there's hatred in your heart and you're like, I'm a disciple, oh, but there's this hatred, okay, one of those two things has to give. And one of those two things will give. Either at some point you're like, yeah, not a disciple anymore, right? I'm done. I'll keep this anger. Or you're going to say, I'm repenting today of this anger and this hatred and these grudges in my heart because I'm a disciple, because I follow Christ. I haven't been following him in my heart like I should have, but now I am today. I'm going to. I'm resolving to. I'm repenting of this. That's the first thing in your heart. Then Jesus goes on in this passage, as you can see here, to talk about insulting and calling you fool, right? Those are two names, Raka and Moros. Moros, we get the word moron, right? So you get the idea, right? Call someone a moron. Uh, you fool. There's even a, a deeper meaning, I think, to the word moros. It's, it's used more often to talk about people who are, like, not just dumb, but, like, evil and dumb. Right? You know the kind of people that make mistakes, and you're like, oh, Raka, you're just an idiot, right? You're just stupid. And then there's people that make mistakes and be like, you're really bad. You're bad, and you're stupid, right? I think the word raka is like, hey, you're just dumb. It literally means empty. So you call someone empty, what are you calling them, right? Empty up here, right? Um, you call someone, you fool, it's like, no, you're not empty up here. Like, you, you, you knew what you were doing, and, and you tried to hurt me, right? It's that kind of insulting that comes from this place of anger that's destructive. Another way of putting this, letter B, I want you to stop slandering your siblings with angry words. That's the real practical application. Okay, admit that your anger condemns you, right? and we're going to start by not nurturing these, these grudges. We're going to give up these grudges. We're going to let them go. Do you know what the word forgiveness means in the New Testament? The word picture? It means to release, to release the debt. Some of you have never forgiven people in your life for things that they've done that are wrong. Right? Great. Let's admit it. They were wrong. Just like all the wrong stuff you did against all people. I mean, imagine if nobody forgave you. Try that one out. Every relationship in your life, you would have burned every single stinking bridge because you're a sinner, just like I'm a sinner. Right? If people did not forgive me, I would probably burn every single relationship that I've ever had with anybody, right? Just like you. Because we're sinners, and we, and we don't just make mistakes. We also sometimes choose to do what's wrong. God calls us to forgive one another. Why? Because we're brothers and we're sisters, just like he calls you to forgive. This moves on to anger and your words. Rakas, moros. Jesus says, it's interesting, he uses the word moros to talk about the, the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 17, he uses the same construction, which is a little bit different, right? When Jesus is calling the Pharisees, you fools, that's a little bit different than you calling your brother or sister, you fool, right? It's the righteous judge of all the earth coming to the religious shepherds of Israel and saying that they're evil and they're stupid, Right? So I think that's something, if you're like, wait a minute, Jesus does it, but he says, if you do it, you're going to go to hell. Well, I think he's trying, he's the righteous judge, and, and you're not, right? So God can pronounce a judgment that you can't pronounce, okay? So let's not look at that instance and say, well, Jesus did it, so I can do it, right? Shouldn't do that. Maybe a better passage to think through is James chapter 3. James 3, 8 is a good verse to write down. James 3, 8 through 10, actually, these three verses. I'll read them for you. James says, no human being can tame the tongue. You've heard this before, right? Our tongues are full of restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God, right? Every single person you have insulted, Christian or non-Christian, saved or not saved, righteous or foolish, every single person that you have insulted is made in the image and likeness of God, 
the, the point is, well, then God takes this offense to, to what's happening here. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. I even like that. My brothers. We've just been talking about being brothers and sisters. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Christ, then the insulting and the, the angry statements that you make at people, you know, you're so stupid, you're so this, right? Those just need to stop. And quenching anger in your own heart's really hard, right? I mean, if you've ever been really angry, and if you're one of those people that's maybe predisposed to being more angry than others, you understand it's like, man, temper, temper's a hard thing to hold back, right? And I hope this sermon's kind of showing you before temper flares up, there's a lot you can do before you get to that place, right? Just like with a lot of different sins. Before you get to the, the most intense part of the temptation, you can avoid it. By not slandering. It's hard to control your own anger, right? It might even be more of an impossible task trying to keep people from being angry at you, right? That's more difficult, and that's what Jesus moves on to. Verses 23 and 24 are really about other people's anger at you. Now, I, I think they're related, obviously. So this, the situation he gives in verses 23 and 24, if you read them again, he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Right? When there's reconciliation, probably there's problems on both sides, right? In 99% of cases, you know, even if it was their fault, maybe you reacted wrong, so there's always wrong on both sides to confess, right? But this text is interesting because it doesn't say if anything is this person's fault. It just simply says if your brother has something against you. That other one, the one about if you've got an accuser and you're going to court, clearly you've done something wrong, right? So those really three situations. One, if you're angry at your brother, there needs to be some kind of reconciliation, obviously. That's not what this text is saying, but that's true in other cases. Matthew 7 talks about that. Matthew 18 talks about that, right? So we can include that here. But mainly, if your brother or your sister or someone's mad at you, and maybe it's something that you don't think is your fault, this text still says you should go. Then in verse 25, 26 says, oh, when it definitely is your fault, when you've got an accuser who's got real accusations, real things that you really said, real things that you really did, oh, well then, it's to your own self-interest. Even if you're thinking not about God at all, even if you're just thinking, I want to come out on top, he says, go settle things with your accuser before you get to court, or before it gets bigger than this. Before you get everybody involved that sees all your junk be better for you and that one other person or you and those two people to reconcile. Be better to do that, just even for your own selfish sake. So I said, you need to admit that your anger condemns you like a murderer. The second thing, this might be even a little harder, I want you to take action to quench the anger directed at you. I want you to take action to quench the anger that's directed at you. The people that are rightly upset with you. The people that you have wronged, and you know, it's like, I, I know I've wronged them. This text is pretty compelling and, frankly, very, very convicting to say, you need to be the one that takes the first step. Not them. You do. Notice in both of these situations, the first one, it's like obvious, you remember. Once you remember, then you need to go. You take the first step. Second one is like, you better take the first step because they're taking you to court, right? So like, I suppose they've already kind of taken the first step, but 
like the point is do it quickly, right? You got to take the first step. But verse 23 and 25 kind of show that, right? That's the first sub point here. Letter A, I want you to humble yourself to take the first step. If you're going to really take action, quench the anger directed at you, humble yourself to take the first step. Think, okay, if I really want resolution here, if I really want reconciliation, well, then I need to do the first step. The reason I say humble yourself is because what's the opposite of humility? What's the opposite of humbleness, right? Say it, it's a word. Pride, right? Arrogance, things like that. Um, Your pride will not allow you to take the first step. If you are proud, you will not take the first step. You'll say, well, they're mad at me. They better come talk to me. I didn't do anything. They better come talk to me. We're talking about a brother or sister here. We're talking about somebody in particular who's in Christ. It shouldn't even matter if if you did it or, or they did it or there's a misunderstanding. You should be like, well, I want my relationship to be right with them. So, obviously, like, this is self-evident to some extent. Like, a little kid, when they know their parents are mad at them, sometimes like, oh, what did I do? And they want to know, and they want to fix it, even if they don't know what they did or what they didn't do, right? They're just like a natural urge, like, things aren't right. But, again, going back to point one, sub-point A, some of us get used to being in fights, and we get used to taking sides, we get used to walking in and saying, this side of the clique goes on that side of the room, and that side of the clique goes on that side of the room. This side of the family, oh, they don't hang out with those. Nope, we go to the family rooms, we don't, nope, nope, we don't do that. We get used to taking sides. Some of us actually like taking sides. It makes us feel like we're part of something, because at least you're part of a side. You might be wrong, they might be wrong, doesn't matter. At least I got a team. Jesus is trying to explain to you, disciple of Jesus, um, you got a brother or sister, you got someone in Christ, you got someone who like is upset with you, it should be natural to say, don't you want to make it right? Don't you want there to not be something bad between you? And he says, go leave your gift at the altar. If you're proud, you won't do this. There's a group of Christians in the Bible that are known for being proud. All the letters that Paul writes, he's got like letters to the Romans and the Ephesians and the Galatians, they were pretty bad. They weren't proud, they were just, you know, they're bad, but misguided. Let's just say that. Do you know the one group of Christians that, like, historically everyone rags on because they were a, a bad church? You know what book? Two books. Corinthians, yes. Not the people from Thessalonica. They were really cool. The Thessalonians were great, you know. He's just like, hey, guys, you guys are great. You repented. It's so clear. Every, like, everybody knows you repented. It's so cool. The word of God came with power, and you, got, you turn from serving idols to serving living God. It's awesome. The Corinthians, he says, all right, guys, um, I would talk to you like you're smart, but you guys are, like, acting like children, so let me explain it to you like a child. That's chapter three. <laughs> like, I, I would want to tell you stuff like you're spiritual people, but you're so fleshly. You're so, you just do whatever you want. It's hard for me to even talk about deep things. And in chapter two, he talks about really deep things. But in chapter six, he addresses this problem where these Christians in the church couldn't resolve their disputes. They were not doing what Jesus said. They weren't reconciling. They had problems with each other. And they seemed to be legal type problems. Like they actually went to court about it. And that was the problem. Paul says, you're taking your lawsuits and you're going to court. You got people in the church and it's like you can't even agree with each other. Or he says, better yet, he says, you can't have some, I don't know, spiritual person in the church. You can't have an older man, older lady come in and try to resolve this. You're going to go to the courts 
to settle this, the Roman courts. There, he's talking about the Roman Empire today. There you go. Um, you're taking him to the Roman courts? Really? Right. Guys, you already thought about it this morning. Girls, there you go. Um, why would you take him to the court? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus, uh, Paul says, you know, like, Christians are going to judge angels one day. Like, you can't even judge the little disputes, and you can't be the peacemaker like Jesus talked about to create reconciliation. So that's the setting. Here's what Paul says directly to them. He says in verse 7, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Like, you should see that as a bigger loss to have some kind of Roman lawsuit. He says, why not suffer wrong? And again, in Rome, you got a lawsuit, it's probably involving money. Maybe someone stayed at someone's house. Maybe someone stole something, right? He says, why not suffer wrong? Don't you think it's a worse thing for two Christians to get in such a fight that they got to get non-Christians to come in and solve it? That's such a big loss. That ruins your reputation before people, right? You're supposed to be salt and light. How can you do that if you've got these big problems and lawsuits and people come into a ministry like True North or they come into a small group like yours and it's so evident and clear that you guys are factional and fighting, don't you know that's a defeat for you? Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why don't you just let people steal your money? It'd be better for you to let a Christian take what's not, your, what's not theirs and you lose out. That would be better than you demanding it from them in some legal setting that ruins your reputation before all the non-Christians. He says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. That word keeps showing up whenever reconciliation is talked about. Brothers, sisters, family members. Remember your brothers here. Do you know people that are like never willing to take the L, right? People do two things when they're cornered and when they're wrong. They either double down or they concede, right? You know those people, whether it's like, uh, you know, it's a joke and it's like, hey, we're joking about somebody and they're like, no, no, it's not true, it's not true. It's like, dude, take the L, take the L. Take the L. Like, you look really dumb right now. Like, you keep, don't double down. Just take the L, right? This is a lame youth group phrase. But you need to learn when to take the L when it comes to relationships, right? Can you just take the L? Can you just be the one that doesn't have to explain your side of the story? Just says, oh, yes, okay. I'm sorry. I want there to be peace. I want there to be reconciliation. Yeah, I, I didn't mean that. I'm really sorry you felt that way. Yeah, no. I want there to be peace because I love you and I care about you, because you're my brother, you're my sister. Can you take the L? Some of us have a hard time doing that in conversation. Right? A lot of those people, you may have a hard time doing it in practice here when it comes to anger. Right? So my point is, know when it's time to concede. And Paul says, when it comes to these lawsuits, it's worse for you to get in these lawsuits. Secondly, if we look back at our text, you see that Jesus describes worship and he describes this lawsuit. Right? That, that's the, something we talked more about in the last point. But here, I want you to think, when it comes to worship, when it comes to church, when it comes to small groups, when it comes to eating dinner at True North, when it comes to praying, when it comes to going to the prayer thing, or standing up in worship, or going to church, or going to serve, right? all those are our expressions of corporate worship. Right? You're never going to go offer a gift at the altar. So how can you apply what Jesus is saying? You might be like, great, I'll never offer a gift at the altar in Jerusalem, so there you go, now I don't have to do this. Right? But I want you to think about your corporate worship times. True North. Going to main service, 
coming together as your you know, True North Club at school, perhaps, or maybe coming on a Wednesday night, right? There's these times where you gather with other Christians, and it's clear, like, we're doing Christian stuff right now. We're not just hanging out. Like, we're, we're, we're doing some form of worship. Okay. Some of us trick ourselves into thinking, well, that's, that's priority one with God. We can save the reconciliation. We can save that for later. That's priority two. I know God probably wants me to be reconciled, and he wants worship, but which one do you think he wants more, right? Extra super spiritual people? Well, he probably wants worship more. Doesn't say that. He says he'd rather you reconcile. He'd rather use that precious, sacred, we don't use that word very much, but the sacred time of worship, he'd rather you miss out on worship if what it means is you're going and doing something that he cares about as a greater priority. Now, my point is not saying, hey, if you're in a good relationship, it doesn't matter if you worship. Obviously, God wants you to worship. But if there's something that's going to keep you from it, he says, this can keep you from worship. Reconciliation can keep you from worship. Let it be, I want you to prioritize reconciliation before worship. Just an interesting thought. I don't think it's the main point that Jesus is trying to make. He's saying, hey, just reconcile. But I want you to notice how interesting this is might be shaping even the way you think about the Christian life. Going from Galilee to Jerusalem, standing in line, leaving your gift, going back to Galilee with your family, I suppose, and then like getting back on the camel and coming back down to Jerusalem to offer your gift, that all seems impractical, right? We, we oftentimes with reconciliation and anything, we make these decisions where we're like, well, practically, that doesn't really work out as well as my plan. Like, I know what the right thing to do is, but that doesn't sound like, I mean, it sounds harder. So I'd rather just, like, find a way to do the right thing, but maybe not in the right way. You know, so there you go. We do that a lot. A lot of times we make practical, pragmatic decisions to disobey what God says. It's wrong. Here, not very practical to go back. But it would have been better for worship, especially when we're talking about a local church. Even Paul wrote to a local church, the Philippians, who were doing really good. But there were these problem people in the church. These two ladies in this church were fighting. And we only know them as the ladies who were fighting. We don't know anything else about them other than what's written, which is, hey, they were fighting. And he says, hey, they're good workers for God. You need to help them agree in the Lord. You need to be a peacemaker. He calls them to get together. That's Philippians 4, 2 and 3. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So Paul has to deal with some, some girl drama in this church, right? Two ladies fighting. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So these ladies are saved, they're evangelists, they're doing good work, and they're not getting along, right? I don't know how many ways Paul can affirm that they're Christians, right? They're sisters, they're fellow workers, they worked with me, they worked with Clement. They worked with, all the, they worked with everybody. They're good ladies, but they're fighting. So he tells the, the person who takes this letter, he says, can you please help them reconcile? Can you be a peacemaker? This local church was not going to worship the correct way until there's reconciliation. Right? Like, you can take this to smallest you know, groups in our ministry. It goes down to our small groups, right? And you've seen this before. If your small group has conflict with each other, guess what you're not going to do very well? You're not really going to worship very well together. You're, you're not going to share very well together if there's conflict and there's problems. It's the same thing. It's just on a smaller scale, right? You see this happen all the time. It's like, oh, well, we can't talk because, you know, I'm mad at them and they're mad at them. And, oh, don't you know that she's mad at her and, and that guy, he has a grudge with this dude. You know, it's like 
that breaks up any group of worship, right? You need to prioritize this first. Say, I'm going to deal with the reconciliation first, then I'm going to worry about worship second. Sometimes we make it even worse. This happens in the Bible a couple times, but maybe you've done this before. Maybe you've had reconciliation that wasn't happening, and you thought, you know what I can do? Because I know I'm not right with God. Maybe if I just worship God and think about God, then that will take away the problem or the guilt that I have with this person. That's also the form of a problem that he's talking about here. So here's another way of putting it. Saul, in the Bible, very famous example, in 1 Samuel 15, he was supposed to sacrifice a certain way. He was supposed to wait for Samuel to come, and he was supposed to uh, sacrifice all of what he got from the city that they conquered. He wasn't supposed to keep any left over for him. He was supposed to offer it all to God, right? It was all going to be sacrificed. Um, all the animals, right? Sorry, lambs and sheep and things like that. Samuel shows up. So he did a couple things wrong. Saul, Saul it wasn't a pragmatically good decision because, you know what, we could feed our, our army with this, so why would I sacrifice it? I know God told me to, but that doesn't make sense to me. And you know what? Samuel's taking a long time. This doesn't seem practical. Maybe I'll lose some leadership credibility with my men, so I'm just going to sacrifice the way I want to. Great. And then Samuel shows up right after he finishes. And Samuel shows up, and he says, what is that bleeding of animals in my ear? Right? Not bleeding like, like of blood, but like, bleh, bleh, like, you know, animals. They make weird noises. He says, why am I hearing the animals right now? That's interesting. Because you're supposed to sacrifice all this. Actually, I was supposed to sacrifice them. You were supposed to wait for me. But, you know, that aside, you didn't even obey what God said. And Saul says, no, 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 no. Like, I was, I was offering these gifts to the Lord. Like, I was worshiping. And Samuel turns around and says this. Has the Lord as great obeying the voice of the Lord? Does God want to hear you sing worship songs that are pleasing to him? Is that what he likes more? Or does he like more when you use your words to reconcile with people that you have not been agreeing with? What do you think God wants to hear more? Your worship or the reconciliation? He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Right? That's better. God, God likes that more. God doesn't care about rams. He, you know, not a fan of LA, right? He, he doesn't care about goats. He doesn't care about the sacrifices in themselves. That's not his concern. His concern is that you would obey him. Don't you know this, right? Like, <laughs> you want people in your life to ask for forgiveness instead of permission, right? You, you know that people, like, do wrong and, like, well, I, I didn't want to ask you because I knew you'd say no and I knew you wouldn't want it, so I just did it, so I'm sorry. It's like, how often do you do that with God? I'm just going to ask for forgiveness because I, I don't want to do what he says. Right? Sam is really clear. We quoted this verse at Revival Winter Edition last year a lot. We mentioned it all the time, but Psalm 66, 18 the psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Even my prayer to God is hindered when I'm not living the right way. 1 Peter 3, 7 is even more clear for husbands. If you're mistreating your wife, don't think God even wants to hear your prayer. He wants you to treat your wife better. Right? Both these situations, the worship and the, and, the, and the court, the idea is go do this now. Right? Let her see. Last thing to write down. I want you to go immediately before it gets worse. That's just for your sake, right? Go, reconcile immediately. Figure it out. Whatever you do, just, just deal with it. 
before it gets worse. Because the longer you wait, the more people you involve, the more problems happen. It will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, I recognize that at some point, you might need a peacemaker. Just like Yoda and Syntyche needed a peacemaker. Just like some Christians, they need peacemakers. So you might be in a situation that's so bad, you need to get someone involved. But before it gets there, maybe it'd be better for you to just deal with it. Go and be reconciled. Ephesians uh, 4.27, we studied this last year, but it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's a good principle. You got a problem, it'd be better for you not to even let a day go by before you make it right. If you want proof that it's better to reconcile and to get things figured out before you take it to court, I got two names for you that will prove it to you. Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. You remember that? That was a year ago now, but remember all that? It was crazy. Made for good viewing, made for interesting, like, whoa. She did what? Like, he did, whoa. Like, that was pretty bad. And then, I don't know, like, and everyone's like, oh, Johnny's great. It's like, well, you know, he's a pretty bad guy too, right? You just came in thinking he was going to be the bad guy, and then all of a sudden, mm, she was kind of the bad girl, and he was the bad guy. They're both pretty bad. Like, if you're honest about what all went down, like, it's pretty bad. If, if you don't know, it's fine. It's not worth your time. But if you were really aiming for reconciliation, which they weren't, right? These are two non-Christians that, that I think hate each other for the most part, right? He wouldn't even look at her if you knew what happened. That's how much there was hatred happening. So this is not a good example of reconciliation. My point is, it was the worst example. Because if you really wanted reconciliation, do you think that after the world knows all of your problems, and after everybody knows, you think that's going to help the reconciliation afterwards? Right? No. You know what would be even worse is if those two people were called to be salt and light in the world. That would make it even worse. You know what would make it even worse is if other people were supposed to see their good deeds and then give glory to their Father in heaven. That would make all of that worse. Right? See what I'm saying? If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Christ, instead of saying, you know what, we're going to air out all of our problems, right? I think they're in the wrong, so yeah, let, let them question. Let everybody ask. I'll tell everybody. Right? Instead of doing that, if you really want peace and reconciliation, maybe it should be you and them. Go deal with it. I trust with how many people there are here. I trust that you all have some areas and some people that you need to reconcile. But if you have something that's maybe even more than that, friend groups, small group problems, you know you need to deal with this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how godly you think you are. You need to deal with this. We'll talk about that more on Wednesday night. But let me pray. We receive this pretty hard warning from Jesus about anger. Let's pray and ask God for help. God, we trust that your word is pure and right. And we know that as we study it, we all are condemned. We know that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of your perfect standard. We know that you call us to greater righteousness. So I pray that the disciples in the room would live up to the greater righteousness you call us to pray that we would abandon any grudges, no matter whether we call them grudges or not. If we hold on to negative feelings and bad stories and things like that that we retell, I just pray that we'd stop that, that we'd stop nurturing it, and we would seek reconciliation. pray that we would humble ourselves in this way. This is a hard thing to do, but we know that it leads to healing and to unity, and ultimately it's what's most pleasing to you. So please help us do this. We pray that this would just be something that makes this whole group more uh, godly and more pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.